This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. You're on 102.7 or if you're listening to us online, hello, good evening. My name is Thomas Cordwell. This is a film criticism show. We're going to be coming at you for the next one hour. And I'm joined by my co-hosts, Alexandra, Helen, Nicholas. And after a long uh, leave of absence, Cerise Howard, you're back in the cave with us. Yay. Yeah, hi. Hi, all, uh, both of you, that is, and anyone out there with the strange fortune to be listening. Very good. How was? <laughs> well, I mean, let's acknowledge the fact you've been furiously busy working on a, a, a fairly major film festival that you have a fairly major involvement in. Yes, yes, rather. Uh, it's a Czechoslovak film festival. I am, um, uh, to some extent, recovered from it, and um, I do believe we'll do it all again next year. We haven't learnt. We have learnt. We've learnt a lot, but we haven't learnt uh, to say no. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, second year running, and it's just, it's just tremendous to see it going strong. Third. Hey, speaking about things going strong, I had a look at our results from this year's Radiothon campaign and was thrilled to notice that the number of pledges that Plato's Cave got from the lovely Triple R subscribers almost doubled what we got last year. So a huge thank you to everybody who subscribed to the station in general, but an extra special thank you if you put down Plato's Cave as your, as your specific show to subscribe to. It's really appreciated. It makes us feel wonderful and you will keep this magnificent station going. One of the things this magnificent station does is it hosts the show Maps. That was the show that was on right before us. Big thank you to Phoebe Squared for the past three hours of most excellent music. All right, let's talk about some films. Macbeth remains one of William Shakespeare's most popular and frequently performed tragedies, and it's been adapted for the screen once more, this time by Australian director Justin Kurtzel, who previously made Snowtown. So in just a moment, we'll discuss what we think of the results. And then from the blood-drenched Scottish Highlands to the blood-drenched streets of South Boston... Black Mass stars Johnny Depp as real-life Irish gangster James Whitey Bulger, whose rise to power in the 1970s and 80s was more than partially thanks to a little bit of help from his friends in the FBI. And then a somewhat change of pace for our final film, Putapari and the Rainmakers. This is a documentary by Melbourne filmmaker Nicole Ma. Taking part over 10 years in the Kimberleys, the film is a portrait of Tom Putapari Lawford, an Indigenous man battling his own personal demons as well as being involved in an ongoing fight for ownership of traditional lands. But before we get to all that, let's take a look at the Scottish film. The Scottish film. Well, the... This played at MIF, and there was quite a bit of excitement in, in my circles, at least, anyway, of people wanting to go and see this. And, of course, it um, premiered at uh, Cannes um, when it was up, I believe, for the Palme d'Or. And a lot of the critical noise around this film is very much the phrase that I keep hearing bandied around, is that it's the role that Michael Fassbender, Fassbender my apologies, was born to play. Was it? Was it the role that he was born to play? Let's find out. Let's talk about it and get to the the, get to the answer the <laughs> of the matter. I love the idea of Justin Kurtzel going from Snowtown to Shakespeare. There's something about that, I guess. Both stories, are, are, in a way, are about a kind of tribalism run amok. And I think that there's a lot to unpack there, the kind of overlapping or intersecting aspects of those um, those two films. I, I've probably just launched a million, you know, fourth-year honours theses um, with that very idea. I'm sure that that is a... I reckon a few of them are on the way already. Yeah, I think you mm-hmm. might be right. Um, 
I mean, look, when it comes to um, Macbeth adaptations, I think that there's sort of a scale. And at one end, you've got the Polanski 1971 version, a very, very good. And at the other end, I think it's fair to say that we've got another Australian-directed Macbeth, the 2006 Jeffrey White version on, on the other end. Now, I don't want to kick the boot into that film. It's almost 10 years later and we've all moved on. But I think that it's not hard to improve, perhaps, on the Jeffrey Wright version. Um, that's the one, I don't know whether you guys saw it, the, Thomas, I think you said that you hadn't. It's the Sam Worthington as Macbeth, set in the Melbourne gangland wars, kind of updating of Macbeth with the t- sexy, tattooed, gothy witches, schoolgirls. So just, just wanted to get that out there. It's not, it's not, it's better than that. I like this one more than that. Yeah, um, on the flip side, I, I think that um, Polanski's version, I, I personally just don't think it can be topped. Um, uh, I guess a little bit of history about that version, if you, if you haven't seen it or if you don't know much about it, is that uh, Polanski made that straight after the murder of his pregnant wife, the actor Sharon Tate, by Charles Manson's followers. And he was obviously in a pretty deep, dark place psychologically, and he chose the, the project, he chose the film project of Macbeth, this Macbeth adaptation, because it really think I, gave, I think gave him space to really work through ideas about trauma and violence that most of us, I would suggest all of us, really can't even imagine where he would have been emotionally and psychologically in that point. And I think that that intensity is on the screen. I think even if you don't know that background, when you watch Polanski's Macbeth, you feel that intensity. It's a really intense film. So I guess the question is, where does Kurtzel's uh, Macbeth fit into this scale? Um, and most people are saying very highly, um, perhaps even better than the Polanski tends to be the general kind of response. For me personally, I, I kept thinking that it was sort of like a, a black metal Ingmar Bergman film, right down to the kind of corpse paint, um, which I love. It's very, very, very metal, um, which is great. That's what we really want our Macbeth to be. We want we want black metal Bergman, maybe I want, maybe I won't speak for all of us. I want black metal Bergman from my Macbeth. It's predictably solemn, which I think goes with the territory of Shakespeare adaptations and perhaps the earlier Jeffrey Wright version that I mentioned showed perhaps that a little bit of reverentiality <laughs> isn't such a bad thing. Um, much has been said, I think, about Marion Cotillard, her performance in this film, perhaps not being that crash hot. And I, I'm a big admirer of her. I think that she's a, a quote unquote great actor. Um, and I was, I had the feeling that, that a lot of reviews were perhaps being a little unkind to her. But, yeah, it really felt pretty dialed in to me, her Lady Macbeth. I saw somebody on Twitter the other day describe her performance as um, like she was doing a, a Mills and Boone's audio book. And it's just perfect description for me. I just thought that was really bang on. I couldn't quite put my finger on what was wrong with it. What was interesting for me is I really like the Polanski for its really raw depiction of violence. I mean, it's really graphic and it's really, really raw. But on the flip side, I think the thing that I like the most about the Kurtzel one is the abstraction of violence, um, particularly the battle scenes. I think I was honestly a bit on the fence about this film while I was watching it, but I did really like the last 10 minutes. I think that that was where it really excelled for me. How about you guys? Oh, look, I... um I'll begin by just going back to Snowtown, uh, Justin Kurzel's astonishing debut film, which left me feeling absolutely beaten up after watching it and almost dumbstruck, really. I, I could barely string a sentence together, uh, more so than usual. And <laughs> it, 
it left me feeling profoundly affected. I still, to this day, have a copy of that film at home, which I refuse to watch. I refuse to watch that in the privacy of my own home. It's a domestic space. It's supposed to be my sanctuary. <laughs> I'm not supposed to bring films like that or Once for Warriors or other similarly traumatic films, especially where concerning families as Macbeth can be said to as well. But, I mean, Macbeth, for all that had impressed me, has nothing like the power of Snowtown, which just got so under my skin and... Uh, I agree with that. Is, ...is an itch I just know is always there to scratch again if ever I dwell upon that film and its uh, extraordinarily accomplished uh, horrors... Um, for any period of time. I mean, this, this is a, Macbeth's a familiar story. Uh, a lot of the dialogue is familiar because it's been handed down, um, not just from adaptation to adaptation, but it's just become part of the vernacular, even all of this business of sound and fury signifying nothing, <laughs> very much. And uh, there's, it, it's quite rehearsed. We, we know it. And, uh, I mean, there might be a few surprises in this adaptation, opening up with a, a rather grisly but strangely beautiful, compelling image of a, a dead child. Uh, and uh, was it stones, little lichen-covered mm-hmm. stones or something covered over the eyes? That's a very compelling image, very strong. And, you know, OK, this isn't going to be uh, a lull fest. It's going to be as grim as, as, as it gets. But actually, no, it's not. It's not as grim as Snowtown. I, I came out of this feeling, in a way, slightly relieved but also disappointed that I didn't get put through that sort of emotional ringer. Um, but there is certainly still a lot to admire in this film. And, yeah, Michael Fassbender is fabulous in it. Uh, he has that, that gravitas... And, um, yeah, he does look great in sort of corpse paintish styled um, apparel and uh, makeup. And the, the moors look wonderful. They're beautifully shot. Um, and Justin's collaboration with his brother, Jed, uh, on the soundtrack, just as with Snowtown, is extremely effective. That sort of brooding uh, Warren Ellis via post rock sort of thing um, with a hint of perhaps black metal in there somehow too is yeah it's it's so doom laden uh yeah look quite a beautiful film but strangely not as upsetting as i'd hoped and not hoped for simultaneously i think the three of us may be on a very similar wavelength with this because i did like it without loving it um yeah, and for the record actually i was a bit like that with snowtown too i liked it a lot and i felt like i was in the minority for not loving it or hating it most people took one extreme i was kind of in the middle more towards the liking it side um, I think with Snowtown, and similar to Macbeth, actually, it was the, the visual impact of the film was quite profound, but I, I, I don't think there was a real insight. I could never work out the point of why we're being shown this, apart from surface detail. And I got that more so with Macbeth, where I don't think the or the underlying meaning was really unpacked in this story. I mean, Shakespeare's plays are rich with subtext and stuff to explore. That you mentioned the baby, which is one thing he's done. You know, there's always been a bit of a mystery about who who is the child Lady Macbeth refers to in one scene as she has suckled a child. So they very early in the film they established the idea that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are grieving over the death of a child, and that's got a lot to do with what has motivated them to go on this power mad bloodbath. Um, it's you know, it's, it's different from the more basic, just murderous rage and you know that the, the, they want the power they'll do what it takes and i i, I prefer that more traditional reading actually i think it's a lot more fun and, and and chilling um and as much as i like the look of this film i think it's a pity that it got all historically accurate i mean shakespeare at the time was not historically accurate he wasn't doing julius caesar with his performers in togas shakespeare has always been at the time performed to suit the costumes and the vernacular of of the day so i'm a big fan of 
updating the, the, the text. I'm a huge fan of changing things left, right and centre to make it suitable for cinema because, you know, plays do not directly translate to film. And this has chopped up and, and done interesting things. But um, I thought trying to make the supernatural, trying to tone down the supernatural elements was disappointing as well. Uh, like, why would you want to tone down that stuff? That's the stuff you should go over the top with. That's great stuff. Having said that, visually, this is startling. I mean, that fight scene at the start is, is amazing. Although... I, again, that kind of slow motion armies running towards Did each other. Did it remind other. you of 300? There was, was a little flash of 300 300, Law yeah. of the Rings, Braveheart. Yeah. I mean, it's almost become the language of big battles in cinema now. You've got to have the slow motion running towards each other and then we see all the individual fights happening in, in the field. It does all that well. You know, the, the scene where the Macduff family are executed, that was a moment that did get under my mm. skin. I found that chilling in this film, the Definitely. way they handled that. The way they made it so public um, and, and just so cruel. I mean, that was where the film came alive for me and really sent the chills down the spine. But apart from the big moments of spectacle, this was a lot of monologuing that didn't sell it to me. I felt like I had to work too hard to unpack the text. Well, first of all, to hear what they were saying sometimes. Um, and secondly, I just didn't get the energy and the emotion. With good Shakespeare, the audience shouldn't have to work. The actors should be able to convey the meaning. And I've seen stage productions and film adaptations where they nail that. This one, I felt like I had to really strain to follow what was going on. Um, I think as a, on a spectacle level, this film is wonderful, but I just, I just feel like those more interior moments don't carry the gravitas or the meaning that Shakespeare intended. Yeah, Cotillard really was a bit wobbly for me, and I, it just breaks my heart to say that. Yeah, um, it's such I a good supporting so cast. Yeah. Look, I was going to say, I, I mean, I will watch anything with David Thewlis in it. Yep. I'll just, I'll just, I just oh, will watch Constantine it. And Patty Constantine and Sean Harris. They're the two names that, that I've got, and they yeah. were remarkable. Um, I think that, you know, if we're going to bandy around this cliche of roles that people were born to mm. play, I think that they... Names like that count just as much as, as Fazbender. I'm really intrigued to know what Kurtzel's going. The the two films that he's got lined up, one is an adaptation of the computer game Assassin's Creed, and the other one is uh, Peter Carey's True History of the Kelly Gang, um, which, of course, won the Man Booker Prize. So he likes tribal so violence, I what's, guess. What's going yeah. on? Where are you going? It's going to be interesting to see. I mean, I kind of like the idea of him going from Macbeth to... Assassin's Creed, I think that's just a sort of mm. random in a way, is going from um, going from Snowtown to Macbeth. There's a really interesting... Like you said, there's there's similarities, but not as well. I'm really fascinated by this trajectory. Well, I think going yep. back to Kelly Gang sounds very promising, actually, back to Australian mm. territory. True crime, Australia. would be surprised yep. if that resonates rather more strongly. Um, Come on, yeah. Assassin's Creed. I, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> It, it's a uh, yeah, child. We, we, none of us are gamers, I don't think. Um, uh, there'll be people right now who are into it's gaming great. who it's would great. just scream, "Come on!" Just, you know, you know your way around the know, computer know. game, don't you? It's, it's a, a historical battle game, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> historical battle game. Um, I like that. I mean, it's very, very art history. The, um, the the first game is very kind of entrenched in art history, which yeah. I find really fascinating. I've seen trailers for the games, yeah. and it does have. It did, you know, some of that stuff does look like some of the fight scenes in this adaptation of Macbeth, so I, I think he will do something interesting with it. He's an interesting, he's a good director. I mean, I've just said I, I haven't yep. loved his two films as much as many people have, but I think he's one hell of a director, and I'm just really looking forward to seeing a long, interesting career from him. Yeah, huge talent. I mean, Snowtown, I was in, in uh, I was absolutely convinced of that immediately, but yeah, yeah that, 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 that film destroyed boat. me. Yeah. This one, no, it's Macbeth. Yeah, Ish. that's kind of it, isn't Macbeth-ish. it? It's like... Esque, Macbeth esque. Macbeth esque. <laughs> <laughs> 
You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. We're going to be talking about Black Mass. This is the latest film by Scott Cooper, a director who really impressed me with his 2009 feature debut, Crazy Heart. Um, I was less enthusiastic about his uh, follow-up film, Out of the Furnace, but we did review it on this show, and and Josh was quite a big fan of that. Um, Black Mass is based on a 2001 book, Black Mass, the true story of an unholy alliance between the FBI and the Irish mob. So, yeah, it's a true story. that The figure at the centre of this is a crime lord, James Whitey Bond. Who, who dominated South Boston organised crime in the 70s and 80s. Jo- Johnny Depp plays Bolger in, um, I think, a, somewhat of a return to form for Depp, actually. It's, it's really nice to see him doing acting rather than effeminate Keith Moon impersonations. Not Keith Moon. <laughs> the other one. The other one. <laughs> that the other would, that I would pay to see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not as bad as the time I mixed up Pet Shop Boys and the, the Beach Boys. Um, Keith Richards. Um, he's very much evoking Jack Nicholson in this, actually, from The Departed. There's a little bit of that and there's a little bit of Joe Pesci in, in Goodfellas. In fact, I think this film really struggles to define itself from Scorsese films. I mean, Martin Scorsese is the master of the modern gangster genre and, and Black Mass... I think struggles for being a pretty good film that doesn't really do anything remarkable enough to distinguish itself. There are there are things of interest though. Um, uh, quite an amazing supporting cast in this film. Actually, there's a really remarkable array of actors. Two of them include Benedict Cumberbatch, who plays um, Bolger's brother Billy, who in the film is now a senator, and also Joel Edgerton, who plays his childhood friend, who is now an FBI agent, a guy named John Connolly. And look, this does, yeah, so this goes through mostly the very familiar beats of the modern crime saga. We see the rise in power, all the violent casualties along the way, and all the close ties to ethnicity. In this case, it's an Irish story. And, you know, a, a big, big, big narrative development in this story is getting the Italians out. Um, it has the standard look for gritty Boston crime dramas, so it's got a dirty white, brown, and grey colour palette. Every single shot looks overcast. And it's, it's, you know, all the characters are very clammy and fleshy hands and faces, um, including a, a guy named Jess Plemons, who could be mistaken for Matt Damon's brother in some kind of weird alternative universe. And he's the character who, he, he plays a, a young kid who begins the film working as a bouncer. And he's the character we were introduced to at the start of the film, and it seems like it's going to use the same narrative device as Goodfellas, where we have the young kid who rises up the ranks and we get to know the lead gangsters through this kid. What's very odd in this film is that he's abandoned almost immediately. It's very difficult to figure out what the focus of this film is. It's trying to cover so many details of his life, it skims over an awful lot. His relationship with his senator, with his senator brother, doesn't get enough attention, um, and the suggestion that losing close family members made him increasingly psychopathic, I don't think really explored to its full potential either. The most interesting element, which is there, but I almost felt like they should have focused solely on this, is the fact that um, you know this guy worked with the FBI. So the, the Johnny Depp character and the Joel Edgerton character, I think, have the most interesting scenes. It's almost like they should have been kind of parallel lead characters. I think, because the Joel Edgerton character especially is fascinating. So the, the, the deal is the FBI uh, approached him and said, if we clean up you know, the 
get rid of the Italians for you and if you don't kill people, you kind of get free reign as long as you feed us information about what the other criminals are doing. And then these FBI men, in particular Joel Edgerton's character, get incredibly morally corrupt and get seduced into this guy's universe. That, for me, was the story. And it, it is there and it gets played out. But I kind of would have loved more focus on that and more of Joel Edgerton. I, I didn't really need so many scenes showing us that, you know, James Walty Bolger was um, a psychopath who would kill people. Um, I'm very curious to throw over to you both to hear what you have to say. I've actually got... I would like to also comment on the use of the female characters in this film as well, but you may beat me to the punch. Um, so I'll, I'll definitely be keen to hear what you think. If yeah. not, I'll come back to it. <laughs> Look, I really, I really like gangster films, like full and stop. I, I and, love and them, I should and, say. And yeah. this was a really just a really fun, dirty little gangster film. Um, it's It definitely wears its love for Goodfellas in particular, I think, on its sleeve. Um, but, you know, don't we all, um, to be honest? I mean, <laughs> why not? Why not? I... Um the, the casting of this film I thought was really fascinating. Um, apparently Guy Pearce was originally... It's one of these films that's been in circulation for years and years and years. Guy Pearce was originally going to play the Benedict... I can't say his name. Benedict Cumberbatch. Cumberbun. Cucumber. Yeah. <laughs> um, Guy Pearce in that role would have made a really different film, I think. Um, I, I had no problem with Benedict Cumberbatch, but um, that to me is a really interesting... And Joel Edgerton's character was meant to be played by Tom Hardy at one point, which again would have made a really... Um, huh. Really, really different film. Yeah. That being said, I, I think Edgerton in particular, I agree with you. I think he was he was really solid in this film. I think this is one of my favourite Edgerton roles, actually. I think Edgerton he was so was a good. damn good actor. And look, yeah. I'm, I'm a high priestess of the Church of Charles Bronson, and on behalf of my people, Ed, Edgerton had solid 70s hair, like really, really high quality. I was very impressed by the quality of his retro hair in this film. Maybe I give too much credit to that, but I think that that's, that should be grounds for Oscar nomination, is how 70s is your hair. Oh, awesome. 70s waistlines. Johnny Depp was really rocking that one. Those, those oh. terrifying pants. Uh, very, very frightening. I look a lot of the a lot of the critical um, sort of. Uh, discourse circulating around this film is very pro-Depp and I almost felt guilty in that I it reminded me a lot actually of watching Love and Mercy um, where I couldn't separate the fact that it was John Cusack I never for one moment forgot that I was watching John Cusack I actually felt like this with Depp like absolutely it's a return to form but I think Johnny Depp is just so his star persona is just bigger than his abilities now and I and I just really struggled with him and actually and maybe it was his particular hair doing this but it almost felt to me that somebody got a really amazing gangster film and had done like a really kind of really authentic um really good quality youtube mashup with um hunter s thompson yeah like fear yeah, and yeah. loathing the, I, the yeah, number of times I, I was thinking that i did say it, think that too to be it fair. felt that it was a little bit oscar baity on his part like it was very conscious that he was like this is a return to form i'm not in a tim burton film people can stop making those jokes on the internet um, but, yeah, I, I, I did actually struggle a little bit with that. The other thing that I would probably add, just as an aside, Thomas, in relation to what you were saying about you wanting a little bit more, like, in terms of the true crime stuff um, or, you know, a little bit more about the actual um, relationship between the FBI and It was him. the FBI stuff I really yeah, wanted look, more. I, know, yeah. I think that, for me, like, this is a really great gangster film, but as a true crime film, I think it's... Um, perhaps not so strong there's an amazing documentary that i really recommend you chase down if you're interested in black mass called whitey uh united states of america versus james j bolger it came out last year by a guy called joe berlinger 
who oh, we, one we, half of the guys that did um, the paradise some kind of monster. And, he did some um, kind of yeah. monster, but yeah, his mm. true crime background is in the Paradise Lost films, which we've covered um, on the show, which so are remarkable yeah. movies. He was directly involved um, in the case for the Memphis Three that saw the release of, of course, yep. of Damien Eccles from Death Row in uh, August two thousand and eleven. There's a huge amount, so that that documentary basically picks up where this film stops, um, and I found it. I watched it after I saw Black Mass and it really filled in a lot of the gaps and it actually made me realise in a way in terms of being a true crime film, um, Black Mass really kind of simplifies a lot of things that were a lot more complicated and I found that I found that they were a perfect match actually. Oh, and then I got cool. my I got my kind of gangster hit from the fictional adaptation. Um, but my factual, you know, my craving for factual information um, sh- came from the doco. The doco is really great. I'll, I'll definitely track that down. I, I should just clarify. I mean, I love the gangster genre as well, but I feel that what they struggled to do was define itself as being anything different to what we've seen countless times yeah. before. And I thought doing more with the FBI connection is what could have really defined itself. And there was a lot of material there. Like yeah. you watch this documentary and you realise that there was so like that the. the Black Mass really simplified a lot of things that were actually really complex. Yeah, and I look, I dare say there's probably a bit more to his interactions with the IRA than this film uh, could really go into depth uh, because that was getting going to go into some pretty interesting territory, I would wager, but it was just really skimming the surface. Yeah, it's another plot yeah. point you want to know yeah. more about, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, well, it really is. Mm. Um, and it's, just, it's not just there, surely, for just period detail and setting the, the scene. Um, it's clearly pretty important, and I imagine... I mean, I think that's some actual newsreel footage we see mm. in there after um, after the the fact and um, yeah, I would have liked more of that to, to know how the American underworld infiltrated the, the battles back all the way back across the ocean uh, between Northern Ireland and um, uh, Her Majesty's and so that, that's really underexplored so that this film does raise a number of things only to really not go into them in quite enough depth and you think it's, there is that tension between maybe this film should have been either half an hour shorter or two hours longer mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a bit neither nor uh, but I, I still found a lot to enjoy in this film. I, I did enjoy Depp's performance. I did. I was relieved to see that he wasn't playing some. <laughs> oh, I don't even know. There was it, no quirk. No, he was bereft of quirk. Yeah. Well, he had some terrible teeth. There was some, <laughs> they, they, I think they're history. Oh, maybe. <laughs> and but he was genuinely menacing. And for someone who is a, quite a slight character, he did manage to do that standover thing pretty effectively. He had that presence. Uh, so he still got it. He can still still uh, call up on it and, and not just sort of phone in the star persona to to have a presence on screen. Um, but the, the supporting cast, a lot of them to me felt a bit wasted in a way too. Like Kevin Bacon was just a oh, bit nothing. Yeah. I, forgot, I forgot that he was in it. Yeah, yeah. Still a whole lot more people have improved their Bacon number through appearing <laughs> in this film. And look, it had the requisite Australian. Joel Edgerton was good. Great hair. Great hair, yeah. Um, and uh, a number of other good character actors who did have that wonderful sort of uh, sort of clammy, pudgy, indistinct, but somehow uh, genre-appropriate look to them. And I don't think that's because of hours spent in the makeup chair. I think it's just well-done central casting. Also, yeah, I mean, uh, people like Peter Sarsgaard are in this. Uh, Adam Scott, and to the best of my knowledge, this is the first major role Adam Scott has played that hasn't been comedic. I just loved, would love to have seen more of that kind of thing. Juno Temple's in a small role that I she's astonishing in. Yep. 
In fact, I will, I'll get to my point about um, the female characters in this film. I mean, the gangster genre is nev- has never been great with with women, but I would argue that, as on a whole, many of the classics, the small parts they do have, they do really good things with. I mean, you think of Diane Keaton in the Godfather films, uh, even um, in, in, in Goodfellas mm-hmm. or, or Casino. Not many roles, but they're really strong roles. This film does one one of my pet hates, which is all the women appear just to be threatened or emotionally or physically abused or, or, or worse. They're there simply to further Bolger's character. So they suffer at his hands to show us his character development. And I'm a really, I really don't like that, where we just have victims on screen to further the character to further the main character for us to say, wow, isn't he morally declining? Um, I'll just throw the grenade out now and say Once Upon a Time in America is one of the worst offenders of this in all time with that revolting rape scene, which is only there for us to say, wow, hasn't he gone dark? He's just done that. This film doesn't get quite that bad, but um, it it does go there with all three female characters. It really doesn't use the talent that it's got. I mean, Juno Temple, I think, just... Lights she does up the screen. So much I mean, so she, little, she, she. I just think she's a remarkable mm. performer. Um, I'm quite, quite besotted with uh, Juno Temple, as, as I think I've touched on before. Um, but even Dakota Fanning, uh, Dakota Fanning, Dakota Johnson. Johnson sorry, mm. not Dakota Fanning. That would have been weird. Um, I thought D- Dakota Johnson was really strong, mm. um, but they just did nothing with her. Yeah, um, the, the acting is all very good. Yeah, I just don't think that they were but really roles well. that they had a huge. Uh, I mean, a they don't take up a lot of screen time, um, and there's not a lot there's not a lot of nuance that you can really bring to these kind of performances. I think they did a remarkable job with what they had. Yeah, agreed. And there's a lot of, I suppose, period and genre appropriate homophobia just hurled willy nilly mm. about the place as well. And uh, I, I, I'm always in two minds as to whether I feel that ought to be addressed or acknowledged in some way, or it oughtn't, because really it is true, I don't doubt, to the fabric of both the criminal world, the underworld, uh, and the FBI too, which just seems like a hotbed of uh, uh, barely suppressed homoeroticism, just bursting, wanting to burst out of those um, 70s fashions. It's just, uh, yeah, I just wish... Yeah, but then again, how would they address it? With that? I, I don't want a sidelong glance or a it's wink a, either. A, yeah, no, I'm glad you raised that. I haven't got a great exp- answer either. Mm. It's a tricky subject. I'm starting to reach a point where I think every film could be improved by Josh Brolin as a cop like going down on a chocolate-coated banana a la Inherent Vice. This is like the third episode that I've brought this up and I think I'm going to bring it. This It's a good film but it needs a couple of more yeah, scenes more, with more Josh Brolin. Banana. I never yeah. found a chocolate banana. I was, I was obsessed with getting a chocolate banana after seeing <laughs> Inherent Vice. Still haven't found one. I'm still searching for my chocolate banana. In fact, I might duck out and have a look for one now. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Before we discuss another film, we, we, we don't particularly enjoy doing this. It's happened a few times this year, but we do need to acknowledge the passing of another very important person to the, the filmmaking world. And tonight we will just talk briefly about Chantel Ackerman. I will go first. Chantel Ackerman, um, to say that this news is pretty devastating is, is an understatement. She's such an important filmmaker, um, both, I guess, sort of broader film history, but also to me personally, she was the first... Uh, she made the first film, I think, that I saw that I really understood the power. This sounds really simplistic, but the power of time in film. She made a movie in 1974 called Jean Dealman. I'm not going to say the whole title. It's, a, it's her address after the title. Something, 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 Brussels. Yes, yes. <laughs> if you Google Jean Dealman, you'll find it. Uh, Delphine Serig is in it. She's remarkable. Um, 
and it's not shot in real time, but it's um, it's a three-hour film, and there's not a lot of um, ellipses. We see this woman go about her daily business without montage a lot of the time. You know, we see her just making dinner and cleaning the house and doing these things, and time drags out and repetition. She repeats these these actions over and over and over again, and a, a remarkable story comes out of this. Um, very simple but very smart way that that Ackerman dealt with time and repetition and um, it devastated me the first time that I saw it I revisited it a couple of nights ago and it um, the impact's not less um, I think it, I think it's a remark I think she's a remarkable filmmaker yeah um, and whose career is encompassed a quite extraordinary array of uh, different film I hesitate to say genres because they're, they're never exactly genre pieces except for a musical that I adore of hers called Golden 80s all of it set in a shopping mall but there's a uh, no matter what sort of material she was tackling there was a very finely honed feminist sensibility there and you know, it's a bit of a scathing indictment upon the industry at large but she is still uh, even having just, just passed uh, easily one of the names that comes first to mind there should be I wish there were a lot more when, when we think of women who've made extremely significant uh, uh, impact upon um, upon film film culture but upon film almost redefining film with with Jean Delman and, uh, and continuing to explore her own personal history and traumas and in fact my understanding is her death came very soon after the completion of her final film in which she explored the final days of her own mother. And there's a lot of Holocaust trauma thrown into all of that, that mix. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's extraordinarily sad that she has passed. Ackerman's first film she made when she was 18, she dropped out of film school and she made a film called Blow Up My Town. It goes for about 10 minutes and she was, yeah, 18 years old, 1968. It's a tough view. It's tough to watch now knowing how she passed away, but it's essential. If, you, if you're kind of new to this director, I, I would absolutely recommend jumping on YouTube and starting with Blow Up My Town. Chantal Ackerman was aged 65. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And over to Nicole Ma's new documentary, Putapari and the Rainmakers, many years in the making, uh, ten at the least, uh, a partly crowdfunded, also MIF premiere funded film, which has a look at some very uh, major national issues uh, through the lens of um, a particular individual, a troubled individual, a man named Tom Lawford, also known as Putapari. And... He is... Um, we don't get that much sense of his tr- personal troubles at first, just a clear allusion to there having been some and that perhaps they're an ongoing battle, but very clearly he is marked as a man between cultures, between worlds to some extent. He is uh, an, a man from a particular country, uh, aboriginally speaking, uh, in Western Australia, who has a family with a very deep and abiding connection with the territory that his family, like so many uh, people, uh, Indigenous people in this country, have been forcibly disconnected from. When we first get to know something of his story, he's in a place called Fitzroy Crossing, and uh, it was a tiny little place. Uh, in the late 60s, which um, sadly, with the you'd think this would be good news, the advent of some equal pay regulations, uh, meaning that Aboriginal people might be paid the same as uh, the white fella, 
suddenly a lot of people who had had work on stock uh, stations, these enormous um, farms in the desert, uh, were thrown off their land. Uh, they lost their jobs, in fact, because, uh, well, just because white folk can be bastards. So, uh, refugee camps, shanty towns emerged all over the country, and including this place, uh, Fitzroy Crossing. And there were as many as uh, members of as many as four different countries uh, who were all bundled together in a Fitzroy Crossing. Now, in the course of this film, Tom Lawford. Is, uh, he embarks upon a variety of trips to where his people came from originally, which is quite, quite some distance away. Still in Western Australia, but um, anyone with even a passing knowledge of Australian geography would know that that is an absolutely colossal, great swathe of land. And uh, he's from a country in the great sandy desert. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I am once more on a hiding to nothing trying to pronounce anything here with any degree of accuracy, so apologies in advance. But he is there with his uh, embarking upon these trips with his one of his grandfathers, a, an artist and dancer and a keeper of traditions, uh, a man whom we mostly get to know as Spider. And uh, Spider is quite a character, and Spider has retained a lot of his traditional knowledge and has the power to, to me, which is absolutely miraculous, of finding a waterhole. And when I say waterhole, I mean really a hole in the ground until it is further excavated. A tiny, tiny little hole in the ground 40 years after having previously visited it, uh, after you know, long, long ago being uh, expelled from that land, forcibly relocated as part of this... Um, uh, Whitefella um, project to dig wells all across uh, the desert and, and so doing soil and sully um, sacred sites, uh, sites sacred to a variety of Aboriginal peoples and uh, you know, poison these wells, and uh, poison the wells so to speak, yeah, poison, poison some very sacred sites and we, we learn about, um, about Spider that he is um, he's still well versed in what this film would certainly give the impression of being an alarmingly, alarmingly effective rainmaking ritual upon finding this waterhole early on in their first trip together um, and digging, digging and digging and um, uh, in, in invoking a snake spirit, uh, the rains certainly come and how. And really what this film is going to some pains, but uh, leisurely pains to, to illustrate is... is the profound connection Aboriginal people have with their countries. And it's not just in terms of these rituals and keeping their oral traditions alive and their dance traditions, but also in terms of trying to get their land back. And the native title claims that various uh, peoples have had to undergo at often great length, a great protracted length, um, are here very literally illustrated uh, magnificently in, uh, in the form of magnificent artwork which is a, a key um, uh, what should we call it it's, it's, it's sort of the what's the key to the film in a way and it's the key to a native title claim is, is multiple peoples try to um, make clear to the white fella in a way that trying to transcend language uh, uh, here was their lands it's very difficult on a white fella map full of its straight lines and other awkward um, arbitrarinesses arbit uh, to, to show that these people have a connection to land and it is, it is demonstrable. And uh, so Tom becomes something of a champion of this cause and uh, this is part of his battles is to, to 
fully appreciate his, his background whilst also becoming sort of functional in a Western world which needs to better understand his culture much as he needs to as well. But he has his own struggles. He has struggles with alcohol and, and remarkably candidly, I think, in this film too, with uh, domestic violence issues that uh, this film in no, no point tries to gloss over that, that Tom has done some bad things and he's paid various penalties for that. This, this is, uh, I found this a, a fascinating film and extremely educational. I think a lot of this, uh, films of this nature are more aimed at people like me, uh, which is to say white people, um, Australasian one way or another, who, who <laughs> sorely need an education in the blackfella way uh, and, and to get a, a real reality check once in a while. Um, that said... Uh, I, I don't think it's exactly a perfect film. I find it difficult sometimes to know just what criteria to judge a film like this by. Um, you know, I, I think it sort of goes on a bit. Uh, it, it doesn't have a, any sort of a conventional narrative trajectory. Um, a lot of very dramatic things are very understated, but perhaps that is also the Indigenous storytelling way. And um, in a way, the, uh, without going to sort of any sort of spoiler territory, it's difficult to know of how, what to make of how this film resolves. Uh, and, and I sometimes uh, I'm at a little bit of pains to know whether it's um, a function of it being a, a film funded to premiere at a film festival and therefore being produced according to certain timelines, or if that's just the way of such a story that it should be open-ended, even though we really want some closure. I'm going to pick up on that. I read an interview with Nicole Marr and she was saying of her first trip to Fitzroy Crossing uh, or her 2001 trip to Fitzroy Crossing that she said there's this phrase that really jumped out at me which was, I saw things that were outside my urban life experience. It's really stuck with me because I think there's something about that phrase that just is really at the heart of precisely what she's trying to do. She just wants to show us something outside of our urban life experience like it was showed to her. Um, There's this beautiful replication in a way of these passing down of stories that that really ties in i think to what the film is doing and what it's about i think it's um a really successful film about about hope in a way about a community that's really proud of its culture and and try and really determined to make it succeed and like you said cerise that uh nungarara so i'm mispronouncing that i'm so sorry the canvas um it's it's like this it's a material object you've got 40 artists working on this but it's also um uh, a legal document in in a quite literal sense. It was a really key document um, in the National Naval Title Tribunal hearings in 1997. Um, the video footage, the archival material in this film is remarkable because we have these sort of layers of ideas of, you know, there's, there's these oral traditions that are kind of archives. But there's also the video footage that um, uh, Tom Potapari Lawford took himself in uh, 1994 and he describes it as being on like a, I think he says it's a old, shitty old VHS camera. Mm. And again, that becomes evidence in a huge uh, native title claim 11 years later. So this idea of documentation and evidence is, it is used in a really, really complex way, I think, in this documentary um, in, in a kind of clashing of cultures way. It's really fascinating. Um, I really like, I mean, you mentioned the kind of darker aspects of, of Lawford's story and I think that it's... Um, there's always the kind of looming issue of exploitation and um you know i think in these kind of films you're a little more conscious of that perhaps than you would be normally but i mean his his honesty is remarkable you never get that feeling and um ma certainly has said that he had a hundred percent control him and his family saw it and they were comfortable that it it presented the truth um his honesty i think is the thing that really stands out in this film is a remarkable um 
different tales being told in this in this film, but it all comes together, I think, um, in a very very frank, honest figure of of Patapari himself, who does you know is the title character. Yeah, there's a lot that I find tremendously challenging about this film, and and that includes what are basically mystical experiences you could almost say mm. really and uh but then there are things there that just challenge me on on the grounds of my own privilege and um and and you know, that's the sort of challenging i especially appreciate yeah. but the mystical stuff still blows my mind because i'm naturally skeptical mm-hmm. and yet it to, to me to, to know that someone can have a so profound a connection to land that they could find themselves uh, find their way back to a tiny dot, a blot on a landscape, so many years after the the fact, and uh, it, it's to me it's almost incomprehensible, and I am kind of awestruck. So, I, I think this is going to become a, a text that will be. I could see this on VCE curricula in future. Oh, absolutely. Um, maybe the near future. It's, and, it's uh, essential viewing, but in a in a really yeah. critical kind of way. Yeah. And I think that's where the strengths of this film absolutely. lie, and will be for probably for years to come. Alex and Cerise have been talking about Puttapari and the Rainmakers. That's screening currently at Cinema Nova through Ronan Films. Tonight on Plato's Cave, we also looked at Macbeth. That's on general release through Transmission Films. We also, t- we also talked about Black Mass. That's on general release through Roadshow Films. My name is Thomas Cordwell. It was lovely having Cerise Howard back in the cave. And as always, Alexandra, Heller, Nicholas, the three of us will all be back next week. Josh Nelson is taking a little bit of time off. You've been listening to Plato's Cave. Good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.